hello and welcome to the Alcasmi Foundation podcast. This week, our senior research fellow Marvin Erfurt sits down with visiting scholar Tiffany Lachelle to discuss African-American EDPATs in the UAE and the effect COVID-19 is having on the teaching community. We hope you enjoy. So Tiffany, I'm excited. We're doing our podcast recording today uh, to learn more about you and your work that is of great interest uh, to us at the Alcasmi Foundation. Uh, and I thought maybe instead of me introducing you, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yes. So my name is Tiffany Lachelle Smith. I'm so excited to be with you on the podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so I was selected uh, for the Alcasimi the Foundation Doctoral Fellowship. And um, basically, the fellowship uh, provides support for me while I'm conducting my dissertation research. I'm interested in one word creation that I read on your About Me page. That is an adpad. You know, not an expat, but an adpad. Could you, could you just unpack that for us? Right. As far as my approach to the work that I'm doing, um, it is based on my own experience as far as being an international teacher. And when I started looking at, you know, how do you talk about this study? You know, how do you situate it in literature? You know, how do you give significance to it? One of the things that came up is this, you know, the politics of the term expatriate. And especially because I'm coming in through a lens of the African-American experience, the term expatriate has rarely been put on, you know, the folks who uh, were exiled out of the country. You know, it was like, as soon as you left this country, you were no longer, you know, part of it. Or, you know, when you look at the notion of the ways that expatriate was used, it was mainly for, you know, businessmen who had been hired on behalf of multinational companies. You know, maybe their wives accompanied them or not. But it was like, oh, you know, I'm over here living this posh life, you know, very political on who could be an expatriate. There's not a lot of talk about educators. Like educators have not been seen as expatriates. And just kind of like sitting with a lot of those ideas and, you know, how to understand it. Um, so I came up with the term EDPAT to kind of just say, you know, these are expatriates who have left educational institutions in their home country, um, migrated to another country, and they're in educational occupations in another. Thoughtful. Yeah, very thoughtful term. You have a podcast on your own, uh, which is called Abroad in Education, Unpacking the International Suitcase. Um, so what is the, the podcast about? Tell me more about the project, maybe, and the title. Yeah. So, so I have to make mention that I, so the, the trajectory of my uh, career in education, I worked two years in the States. I worked two years in Morocco, Casablanca, Morocco, and I worked two and a half years here in the UAE. So during that third year, after I left the UAE, I went back to the States. And when I left, I had, I had already been accepted into my PhD program. So I'm in the PhD program and I came in with this, with this knowing that my study is going to be about African-Americans abroad, right? I knew that, like I came in and I'm like, I, I, I don't know what it is about it, but 
every time I would tell a professor, a colleague, you know, anybody, my, my study is going to be about African-Americans abroad. They're like, why? You know, why? What are they doing? I said, well, they're, they're teaching, right? So then it was African-Americans teaching abroad. And then it's like, well, how are they teaching? You know, are they in the Peace Corps? Are they, you know, in the military? You know, how do you explain this teaching? And I'm like, you know, there's private schools and, and, and the UAE is special in itself, but there's private schools and this, this, and this. Because there, nobody knew, like it's such a phenomenon that it's like, where, what, how, why? I said, well, rather than explain it to you, let me bring the voices to you. So that's when the podcast got started. And basically it is, an, I'll say investigation, but not really. It's like dialogue, just, you know, kind of connecting with, folks who are teaching in private, public, you know, schools abroad, um, study abroad, those who have engaged in study abroad. I've started interviewing um, people who work on behalf of companies like International School Services. They uh, do the, the recruitment fairs and bring folks together. You know, the interview is about what would a person experience coming to your company because there's many companies to choose from. So it's really turned into this space like a resource specifically for folks who are interested in um, working abroad. And then for those who have, you know, done different like various roles in, in this international engagement space. But it's my safe space outside of academia where I can just, you know, talk without needing to cite or, you know, right. needing to follow the, the <laughs> formula on how to do research. It's like, you know, people know how to unpack and talk about their own stories. So let them be, you know, the academics and, and talk about their experience. So, yeah, my compliments, I listened to a couple of these episodes just to prepare myself also for, you know, to find out what you are doing and who I'm talking to. And it is really, really interesting. It's great work. So my understanding is that in your PhD projects, sort of the larger one that is then academic and separate from your podcast, is that uh, you look into the choices of African-American teachers who left the US to teach in the UAE. So how did that come about? What is the, the idea behind it? And I'm wondering why the US and the UAE? I mean, I know that you're from the US, you're now, you know, you're now in the UAE, you have worked in the UAE, but, but why these two countries maybe? Okay, so let's start with why African-American teachers. Um, of course, specifically with African-American teachers, there is a strong connection to the U.S. And I will kind of give a little backdrop of education. And this is very, very um, brief, and it doesn't do a good job of talking holistically about the societal implications, politics, like you know, race and racism, um, sexism, like a lot of the big issues in the States. The small portion that I'm giving right now is not enough to describe everything that has happened. But I'll try to put it in a context where it's relevant to, you know, us today. So a collective understanding of the African-American community in the States is just, you know, for one to access economic and social upward mobility is through education, you know, it has always been get your education, get your schooling. And that's the only way, you know, that we can start to undo and um, redefine um, who we are specifically in the States. 
So when you look at the states, you're looking at this, you know, and of course not linear, but just this historical timeline of forced migration, slavery, segregation, you know, all of these big events um, that happen that is still like the intricate details of what and who the states are. So I want to start with specifically segregated schools because this is why my study is significant. So <laughs> before 1954, um, as far as education in the states, and, and it's not, you know, education has always been this way, but there's a specific educational time where there were segregated schools. And that is white students attended white schools and black students attended black schools. So there were laws that prohibited black and white students from being able to attend the same schools. Okay. So during this time, specifically for college educated and lower African American, you know, particularly women, teaching was the only accessible and respected career for this upward social and economic mobility. So especially in the black community, it's like, you know, you had two options, teaching or preaching. You're either in the school or you're in the church. That's it. <laughs> so a lot of folks chose teaching. Okay, so we're looking at, in my study, we're looking at this comparative between the 20th and the 21st century and just kind of seeing how this shift happened. So between the 20th and 21st century, there was a very significant decline of African-American teachers in the U.S. And it's interesting to note that in the 20th century, specifically in 1950, half of the African-American population in the U.S. were educators. So we, you know, have been known to be, you know, in the schools, working with children, you know, we're living in the same neighborhoods, we're part of the communities. But the issue was many of the black schools were under-resourced, you know, low money coming in. So there was this push as far as how can we provide, you know, African-American students with not necessarily a prestigious, but, you know, basic needs, a good education, just a good education. It was never about the teachers. It's just like, how can we, you know, provide the good education? So fast forward to the 21st century. Um, my study kind of looking at this significant decline. In 2015, right, there were 3.8 million elementary and secondary educators in the states. Only 250,000 are African American. Oh, wow. So we're looking at this, this significant decline. And because of the ways that like statistics are collected, you know, when, when you know, you're looking at census data and trying to understand like how can we even start to talk about these numbers, um, the numbers as far as uh, valid statistics, the numbers start with the 1987-88 school year. So looking at the 87-88 school year and then fast forward, Fast forwarding to the 2011-12 school year, which is 30 years plus, the overall teacher workforce increased from 2.5 million to 3.5 million. So you have a million student, I'm sorry, um, educator workforce increase. So then when we look at, you know, just the, the numbers, so white teachers grew from 2 million to 2.7 million, and African-American teachers grew from about 190,000 to 231,000. So the numbers are big, but the issue is when you look at proportion. So like when you start comparing the different sizes of each piece, minority teachers, which, you know, goes into that bracket of teachers of color, 
um, there is a lot of imbalance between what's happening in contemporary like recruitment and retention studies. So um, when we look at proportion, and this is the same time uh, between the 1987-88 school year and the 2011-12 school year, white teachers in proportion, white teachers decreased from 87 to 80%, which you know they are the majority in the US education uh, workforce, so white women are the majority. But there was a decrease from 87% to 80. And then looking at minority teachers, teachers of color. So Hispanic teachers increased from 3% to 8%, right? Between this 30 plus year gap. Um, Asian teachers increased from nearly 1% to 2%. So there is an increase of these specific minority teachers. But when you look at African-American teachers, we decreased from nearly 8% to nearly 6.7%. So while all of these societal efforts to bring in more teachers of color, you know, alternative routes to certification, you know, how can we bring more teachers into the U.S. education workforce, other, other minority teachers are increasing, are increasing but African-American teachers are decreasing. So of course the question is always why? And some scholars have started to answer, and there's two particular answers that have been given. So as I mentioned before, um, segregation. So in 1954, there's a big Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board, and um, uh, at that time, you know, it was lawfully prohibited for segregated schools. So white children and, and black children had to integrate. And what happened pretty much was black students integrated into white schools rather than the opposite way. So yes, uh, this is where you start to see school integration at a slow pace, but what people have not noticed or at least you know, put the lens on is while African-American students integrated into white schools, many of the educators, the African-American educators didn't. So what happened was between like 1954 and 1972, nearly 40,000 African-American teachers lost their jobs. 45% of African-American educators and administrators were forced out of the US education uh, workforce. So then that's, that's one piece of it, right? That there was a wholesale dismissal of African-American teachers just out of the profession. And then when you look at contemporary studies, some scholars say that, you know, African-American teachers are choosing to leave, right? It's this, you know, they don't have autonomy, you know, they're not involved in school district policies. And then some scholars even say, okay, well, let's talk about salary increases, professional advancement, and then, you know, they'll stay. <laughs> Everybody will be happy. Um, so it's interesting to kind of look at those two things um, and then, you know, think about, well, if when teachers leave, they have been said that, you know, they leave education, they're career changers. So this notion of leaving um, has yet to understand the fact that some, and not only African-American teachers, I, I have to be mindful about that as well. It's not only African-American teachers, but many U.S. teachers have also left the U.S. K-12 education system for teaching opportunities abroad. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody's talking about it. Why? So specifically for, right, so for African-American teachers, the question is, you know, here, it, it's like a, like a bittersweet notion, right? There's, there's efforts, there's policies, there's things being put into place saying, come into the education system. And some folks come, they come, 
But at the same time, they come in and then for various reasons, they're right back out the door. And some on their way out the door are not going to other careers. They're coming to countries like the UAE to teach in these educational systems. So then you ask, okay, so why the UAE? <laughs> so the UAE is interesting to me. And, and of course, the, I would say it, it starts from my own experience here. And I can compare the UAE to Morocco and say that I was very surprised at how many African Americans are here. And I have to put emphasis on African American because it's one of those things where when you look at a lot of migration and mobility studies, it talks a lot about folks leaving like underdeveloped countries for more developed countries. But for African Americans, you're coming from a developed country. You're leaving a developed country, you know, for something else. And I think there's something interesting in that, especially for me, because I know what I'm lacking in the States and I know what I'm gaining abroad. So in Morocco, there was not a large population of African-Americans. I was actually Senegalese before they heard the, the American accent, right? Um, so then I come to the UAE and I find that I not only have to not explain my Americanness, right? Because although I, I have dark skin, but as soon as I say I'm from America, it's, oh, okay, you know, it, you are welcome. You're, you know, it, it's no questions about it. It's almost just like, okay, you can be a black American. And it made it easier, the fact that there were other black Americans here. So I'm just like, where did all of you come from? Like you weren't in Morocco. What are you doing here? And it was such a, a amazing space because you had people who were, you know, creating spaces specifically for not just African-Americans, but, you know, black people in general in the UAE. Like, I'm still connecting it. So the reason that, that I am suggesting that the UAE um, is special is because one of the things that the UAE does differently, well, first of all, the UAE is rated second under China for international schools, English medium international schools. Let me say that. So they are rated second in the world. A second in terms of the number of schools or a number of students, teachers, second to what? Great question. So the UAE is rated second in the world um, for the number of English medium international schools. So they, so the UAE in possession of um, English medium. And I have to keep saying English medium because there's so many different uh, international schools that are available, but having English as a piece of your instruction uh, basically puts you into that English medium category. So the UAE is second after China for having you know, the most is being in possession of these types of schools. So that's one thing uh, as far as cities, Dubai. And, and you know what? I have to be mindful because these statistics are coming from maybe 2016, uh, maybe even 2017. But Dubai was rated number one in the world um, as far as the city with the largest amount of English medium international schools. So what makes UAE significant as far as recruitment for educators to come and work in these schools is the fact that not only are educators being recruited into the private schools, but they're also being recruited into the public schools. So when it comes to expatriate teachers, um, it's, it's, it's good to note that Americans are very small 
in numbers as far as international teachers here. I mean, you have so many from Europe. You have so many coming in from um, the UK. Um, and then there's a, I think even Australia, and I, I believe the statistics put Australia and New Zealand in the same category. But I think for American teachers, it's only like if 10%. So this is a new concept for Americans because it's it's like we've never been travelers. Like America has this notion of, you know, why do you need to leave America when everybody in the world wants to come here, right? The ego. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for folks who are choosing to leave, and in particular to the UAE, there's a lot of us coming, and it's just an untapped space um, that, that I'm interested in. Um, so, yeah, so the UAE, you know, with a number of schools, um, just so with the educational reform in itself, uh, starting with, you know, Vision 20, 2020 or 2021. Um, yeah, when they changed uh, schools to Western schools and, you know, started using a lot of the international testing and all those things, um, not only U.S. teachers, but U.S. teachers included became, you know, good representations of leaving the they're leaving our country to come here and you know help with that educational reform so um, it is a lot of unpacking motivation right because even though all of this is available it doesn't mean everybody's like okay bye America I'm gonna go to the UAE and especially in the sense that international schools English medium international schools are global right it doesn't start the conversation doesn't start or end with the UAE, but there has been a lot of people, and I don't have the numbers, which if anyone does, <laughs> um, but there's a lot of people who have chosen to leave the states, specifically African-Americans to come and teach here. What are the stories that you're hearing? I mean, it's, it's large numbers, right? And it's, it's a very complex phenomenon that you're looking at, but I'm interested in, that is also my understanding that, you know, looking at how you are researching that phenomenon that plays a role, right? So the stories of the individual teachers that are coming from the US here. Can you share some examples? Yeah, and I'm glad that you put emphasis on stories because stories is basically the, the root of my study, um, especially when it comes to providing solutions you know, like, like you just said, understanding a phenomenon. I think, especially in academic research, this notion of being objective, right? Like, I can't influence it. I can't touch it. I can only, like, step back and observe from afar um, has, has been very detrimental to people's experiences, the ways that people's experiences have been shared, you know, globally, so for me, I do believe in subjectivity where I'm, you know, building relationship and, and, you know, understanding, you know, not only like it's easy to go in with an agenda and just say, so tell me about why you left the States, period. <laughs> but what I'm doing in my study is more so about, tell me about who you are. You know, what is your interest in education anyway? What was your experience in the States? And then what is your experience here? And, and these are these are long form stories, right? So it's not, you know, give me 30 minutes of your time. It's two hours on one day, you know, maybe three hours on another day. But to answer your question, so as far as what are some of the stories, it would not be responsible for me not to mention the fact that, that yes, 
money has a lot to do with it. Um, I actually conducted a pilot study here in the UAE. So I, I came over during the summer of 2018 to try the study. And I just wanted to see, you know, connect with some folks who were already here just to see, you know, is there something even worth studying? Um, and just with a few people that I, were, I was able to sit down and talk to, I felt like, okay, this is interesting because the UAE in itself has a reputation. I mean, first of all, depending on who you're talking to, you know, Dubai is the country, right? You say United Arab Emirates, folks are like, what is that? You know, and then it's not until you say Dubai, it's like, oh, right? And like the notion of, you know, luxury and, you know, celebrities and, you know, like, like the, the reputation that the UAE has made on a global scale. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's such a young country. I can't even say like within the past 10 years, but there, there has been a short amount of time where, you know, folks didn't know anything about Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and then all of a sudden everybody knows about it. Yeah. So as far as just like the reputation of the UAE, it would be irresponsible for me not to mention that because this this country is very known for, you know, um, lucrative salaries, oil, you know, lucrative money. You know, um, people keep asking me, have you seen the Lamborghini police car? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. I've never seen it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> I've seen pictures, but I've never seen it with my eyes. So um, I'm saying that to say, especially in comparison to the states, uh, teaching does not have, education does not have a very high societal um, standard value. Uh, teaching is almost just like, eh, it's like a passionate career that women go into, right? It's like just the notion of teaching. Um, it doesn't have that value. Um, so kind of looking, you know, because of that, looking at salaries in the states, the teachers, you know, on average, depending on the state, because it's a, it's a large country, teachers are making, I don't even want to say enough. I don't even want to say enough because, you know, one, you're looking at taxes, you're looking at, you know, if you have a house, if you have a car, you know, you're looking at the medical care system, you're looking at if you have a family, like there's all of these different factors, which makes living a life where all of your basic necessities are taken care of. Teaching is not the occupation that has been known to allow you to do that. And then you switch that over to the UAE, right? So they are offering, and, and this is part of, you know, the conversation that I think is interesting because it's not that the salaries are larger here, especially when it comes to educators. The salaries are not necessarily larger. It's the benefits package that makes the salary larger. So you may, you know, between, I would say between forty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. I don't know. It depends on the school as well. Um, and private and public. But what happens is U.S. teachers have a tax-free salary, completely tax-free. Um, the benefits package provides your housing, so you're not paying for housing, right? Um, when it comes to uh, being able to save and take care of student loan debts, which I didn't even mention in the States, right? This, this space, being in this space allows you to do that. But my thing is, that's, it, that's the international school market in general, right? Most of these private schools in any country could offer that. So kind of like figuring out what is it about the, the UAE 
One of the most interesting things that has come up, especially those who work in public schools, is the fact that teaching is not easy here. It is not easy. And, you know, even, even though once you get into the classroom, you come with this expertise, you know, you have to have certain qualifications. One of the biggest issues is the fact that a lot of their expertise is not necessarily being tapped into because it's part of a social agenda. So you have this, you know, bring your education, you know, get in here and, and, and help Emirati students, specifically Emirati students, um, compete with the globe as far as, you know, education. But a lot of the knowledge that folks have come with, it's not being tapped into. So there's this notion about, and I, I still remember the woman who said it in our interview. She said, you know, I was living in the States, um, check to check. Um, you know, my life was routine Monday to Friday, you know, I'm at school, um, you know, weekends, you might do a happy hour, you know, during the summers, you're either doing summer school or, you know, connecting with your family that you neglected for the whole year. And she said, you know, she got to a point where she said, there has to be more to life. Right. And especially for folks who have believed in, you know, the mantra of the black community, which is get your education for economic and social mobility. You invested in the education and you still didn't get your economic and social upper mobility. And now you're just, you know, it's this, this phrase that has been used several times on and off this rat race, the American rat race, you are in the rat race and you're not gaining, you're not losing, you're just doing day to day. Same thing. So she came up with this, this notion, you know, there has to be more to life. And the way that I interpret that, especially when it comes to one's decision to go and teach abroad is, it's like this being in search of greener pastures. But then the other thing is like, you know, these influencers, and I'll, I'll, I'll call it social media influencers, but then I'll also call it friend influencers. But it's very similar to... Um, it's called the great migration where many of in the States, many of the African Americans in the South migrated North millions for no reason at all. It's just, you know, everybody was in the South and then for some reason, everybody migrated North over this time period. But uh, there was a scholar Wilkerson who went in and did the stories, life history interviews and started asking, well, why did you do this? Uh, why did you leave? And uh, one of the biggest things that sticks out that's similar to my study is Folks who left would go up north and then they would call back or they would go back and they had these beautiful, vibrant stories. Oh, up north, you know, it's no segregation. There's jobs, there's this. So it's like the storytelling about what they're experiencing. Um, and then, of course, even when more folks come, there's still a reality, right? <laughs> Without the stories, there's still a reality. And that's exactly what's happening here in the UAE as well. So you have, you know, Instagram, you have Facebook, you have Twitter, and you see people, you know, posting these beautiful pictures and, you know, this easy, lavish lifestyle. And those are some of the stories that are being sent back to the States to say, hey, it's something over here. But yeah, so those are some of the things that's coming up. And like I said, it's still happening. It's still in the process. But yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. Very interesting. You shared before that you recently met virtually with a couple of teachers to talk about how the coronavirus is impacting them in their work. 
uh, and their experiences. Is there something that you want to share about that as well? So, so I, I mentioned that because um, myself, you know, inclusive of everybody around the world, I'll say that none of us could have prepared for COVID-19. And I have to mention that COVID-19 has had nothing to do with my study. <laughs> like when I'm preparing on, you know, talking to people and understanding this, this, and this, COVID-19 never came up. So, <laughs> and what's happened is, you know, with the amount of time that I've been here, I am pretty much at the end of collecting uh, data, collecting stories. And I just don't think that it would be, you know, diligent to kind of skip over it like, oh, yeah, that happened. And then everything went back. So in order to kind of understand, you know, how COVID-19 has impacted particularly African-American teachers, and it comes because of the study that I've already started I decided to do a focus group to, um, you know, just inquire about what's happening. You know, um, how have their how how has you know the teaching changed? You know, what are some of the things they're experiencing? And then, sorry to interrupt, but then just to help the listeners understand, focus group means you're getting four, five, six teachers together, and then you 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 do sort of a podcast-ish situation like this, an interview with all of them together, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and essentially, it's, it's supposed to be a space for the people who are, so it's supposed to be a space, space where I kind of take the back seat and let the folks in the, in the, in the group talk. Um, I invited about 10 people, but the conversation was about maybe an hour and 15 minutes. I wanted to understand, you know, what was happening as far as the remote learning, all of this stuff. One thing that, that saddens me, so, so doctors and nurses have been talked about as first responders. And I think it's, it's amazing, right? These are the folks who are, you know, putting their lives in danger, you know, through every encounter, right? They're, they're, they're risking their own lives to save a life. And What I say is, you know, yes, doctors and nurses are first responders, but educators are, are as well. So thinking about, and that's why I asked you, I said, has this been going on since February? So thinking about like the way that COVID-19 impacted the UAE, I still remember one day, uh, I think it was the national or something was just like, yep, pre-K, pre-K uh, buildings, pre-K schools, done. Keep them home. <laughs> And then everybody's panicking, like, but what about the folks who have jobs and families and this, this, and this, right? And then maybe a couple of days later, it's like there's talk about going to remote learning, right? Okay. And then I think a couple of days after that, and I know this didn't happen through weeks, it was like days. Um, then it was like, okay, we're going to remote learning. And sorry that it's during your spring break, educators, but we're going to flip your spring break. <laughs> give you a week to prepare and then you need to be in front of the computer using online resources to sustain the K through 12 education system system in the UAE and I'm thinking well goodness how is that not a first responder because now you have the 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 country's um, you know will and desire to sustain education on the backs of right And, 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 and the dynamic of this country is literally expat 
educators, whether it's teacher, whether it's teachers, um, you know, admin, uh, specialists, you know, and regardless of their nationality, regardless of their nationality, we are first responders. So there's three themes that came out of this conversation. And um, I'll mention the three, but I'll only talk about one. So it's, it's the notion of uh, support, a lack of support. Um, and then another thing that came out uh, specifically for me is just like this mental health and well-being of K through 12 teachers, um, specific to African Americans. And um, it, it's also inclusive of Americans in general and everyone else. But it's like this double taxation, right? We're experiencing the, the COVID-19 here in the UAE, but we're watching our families and everyone else experience it as well. And then the other thing that came up, uh, I thought it was a great phrase, greater later. And that's this um, issue that, you know, some schools have started, if not already deducting salaries, but threatening to uh, reduce salaries. Um, because, you know, especially in private schools, a private school is based on parent fee, tuition. So if the parents aren't paying or if, you know, things that have been budgeted for this year aren't being offered, right, it's a, it's a lot of things that are happening. So um, the conversation talked about, you know, between 15% to 50% reductions that, you know, have been implemented until the end of the school year. But this, you know, people are living double lives, right? Some folks have houses back home. Some folks have families back home. You know, this is where the money is being sent. So talking about this greater later and how we can better support, you know, not necessarily, it's okay that you take the money now, but can I get it back later? <laughs> like, how do we discuss that? So I guess the, the theme that I want to focus on here is this notion of support because for, um, much of the conversation that I was listening to, the teachers were telling me about this like rapid shift to remote learning. And some of them were prepared and some of them weren't. And it wasn't like there was a choice in it. It was, okay, this is, you know, top down. Government said this, schools say this. And remember, this was on the backdrop of the homework thing. You remember when they said, oh, homework is suspended for the country? Yeah, so it was like, even that, top down, right? Teachers don't have a say-so in that. It's just like, we tell you what to do and go do it now. <laughs> so especially with this notion of remote learning, not only are teachers expected to do it, but some had to actually learn how to do it as well. Some educators have been asked to uh, uh, address parent needs. A lot of parents were not prepared for the remote transition. It's just like, so... What are we going to do? You know, how am I going to do this? You know, what do I need? And specifically for those parents who have, you know, three and four or five kids in the house and everybody's remote learning and there's two laptops. So how do you, you know, navigate? How do, how, how do you navigate it? And for some reason, the front line is not the administrator. It's the teacher. Let's talk to your teacher because the teacher has the answer for this. So many people have this assumption that remote learning should be easier. So let's reduce your salary because you're doing less, which is not necessarily the case. So I said, well, if you're doing all of this stuff to support, who's supporting you? And then it's like, well, if you're planning on, you know, <laughs> taking salary, then maybe I should reduce my work as well. But then it's always, it always goes back to this, well, why should the kids suffer? You know, how do we not you know, let the kids suffer on behalf of, you know, 
our personal needs, which is not fair. So I, I want to sit and kind of explore this notion of support because I do agree that it's easy to say, how are you doing? I'm fine. But I think one of the things that I will continue to give UAE um, just a positive accolade about is that the UAE's response to the, to the, to the COVID-19 was it was reactive, not a response. I'm sorry, proactive. It was not a response. So as soon as things happened, it was like, okay, let's get this in place, get this in place, get this in place. And, and as we're watching what's happening in the States, which was basically a response to what the world was doing, it was too late. So the UAE has been very proactive. I'm just wondering out of all the things that we talked about, what are probably, let's say, three things that you want the listeners to remember? So I, I would say the first thing is, uh, especially in the academic space, there is not a lot of value, I'll say, being put on, you know, what we call qualitative research. And that is, you know, searching for the stories, unpacking the stories. Um, one of the things that I would love for people to uh, kind of hone in is, is just the fact that my position is talking about African-American educators, but what about Emirati educators? What about, you know, educators from the Philippines? What about, you know, our, our stories about our experiences, which can also be seen as knowledge, right? Not sitting from afar and telling people about what someone is experiencing and rather going to the person and asking them about their experiences. This is knowledge. This is you know, what I believe research to be. So um, especially with uh, wonderful foundations like the Al-Qasimi Foundation, who actually supports qualitative research and, and many other types of research, um, it has truly been an amazing journey for me. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing I'll say is the UAE is amazing and it is my second home. Uh, I don't know... <laughs> what it will look like. But when, like I said, when I taught here, I was here for almost three years. You know, I'm conducting my dissertation research here now. And then, you know, maybe in the near future, I'll be looking at universities or, you know, other, other organizations. But yeah, the UAE has a special place in my heart. So there are a lot of complicated and complex ideas that are happening and, you know, lived experiences, which are interesting and in various ways, but I, I do think it's a beautiful country and it makes it very easy for me to be me here. Um, and then I guess the last thing I would say is this notion of recruitment and retention. And it does have a connection with just the, the support thing that I was saying. Um, I feel like we're, we're experiencing a snapshot of like I my professor actually asked me to consider this not even thinking about your children but your children's children so what are we going to tell our grandchildren about what we're experiencing right now and I kind of use that notion to think about how 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 can we use what's happening in education right now um, and, and, and mold it to what we want to talk about, right, in the future years. So just thinking about um, what can we actually do to make education more of a profession rather than this space where, you know, people have to sacrifice and be passionate and, you know, 
be, be smaller than their own needs and wants to show up on behalf of kids, parents, and men. Um, and giving us the space or the credit or, you know, everything that goes into education, valuing it a bit more. So, <laughs> yeah, so those are the three things. Thank you for your time, for your insight. Well, thank you, Marvin. I appreciate this even talk about the research. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the al Foundation podcast. To find out more about our research, capacity development programs, and community engagement, visit our website at www.alkasimifoundation.com. Discover more episodes of the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thank you for listening.